Thank you for joining us, and I want to welcome our live stream audience. Okay, uh, Br Br Brandon, I, or Brandon, I'm, I don't know that they're hearing in the room from the mic system. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you noticed on Sunday morning at service, but uh, I came up and we had a call to worship, which is different. And there's a couple reasons for that. First and foremost is because I think we've lacked starting or beginning with prayer. And we, we want to do that. That's very important that we launch into a joint corporate worship of God with prayer. It kind of sets our minds and our hearts. And the second reason for it is because we are a loving fellowship, and that means people like to talk before service. And so we, we start, and people are still talking. So maybe it helps people to find their chair and get started and focus in with us so that we all are one as we begin. And uh, so tonight, without the mic, I couldn't talk over you guys. You guys were just having such good fellowship which is a wonderful problem for a church. Amen. All right. Well, it's good to see you. Welcome to the live stream audience again. And thank you for joining us. Uh, I am thankful for technology that people who live in Ohio or Japan uh, could actually tune in and experience uh, the service tonight. And, um, and really that fits the scripture very well. Jesus said, I want you to take it all over the world, to the unknown world, take the, the gospel. And so like many churches and many Christian leaders who teach the Bible, uh, we're participating in that by having a live stream. So tonight, uh, let me just begin. Uh, Scott Walker, uh, the chairman of our elder board, just walked up and handed this book to me and uh, because it's been so helpful to him and uh, also because he thinks I really need this. Um, <laughs> The Disciplines of a Godly Man. The Disciplines of a Godly Man. So I, I just want to throw it out to the men that are in the room. You might want to pick up a copy. The Disciplines of a Godly Man. It looks like it'll be a good read. He's already started. He loves it. So anytime I come into something that's, that's really good, I'll pass it on to you on Wednesday night. I do that a lot, and I want to continue to do that for you. Okay. Um, Tonight we are in 2 Kings chapter 4, and we're going to begin with prayer. There's no better way to start the service. Father, I want to thank you for uh, the privilege, the privilege, the privilege to pray, to, to actually commune with our Heavenly Father. And it was your Son who told the disciples to do it. This, this is how you do it. Our, our Father who art in heaven. And he said, hallowed be thy name. And then he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, every day you want us to allow heaven and the will of God that's in heaven to manifest in our lives on this earth. And tonight, Lord, it is your will that we would meet together as the church of Jesus Christ and that we would open the Bible and study the scriptures together. 
I pray that you bless every person that's here who opens their Bible. Encourage their heart, strengthen us, correct us where we need correction. May the Word of God do its perfect work in our hearts tonight. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who will lead us into all truth, who will bring to remembrance everything that Jesus, you said to us, who will be our constant comfort, who will open the truth to us in such a way that it will literally set us free spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of studying the Bible tonight. So we give you the glory and the honor for the work that's going to be done by your Spirit in each of our subjective hearts. Amen. Uh, last Wednesday night, I, I, I shared with you a deep burden that I have uh, that the church, I don't see anguish uh, over sin. I don't see the church burdened over the direction that our uh, the world is heading and how quickly the world is changing. And uh, in staff meeting this week, the main focus of our staff meeting, we, we talked about it for a long time, and then we had a, a season of prayer. But I talked about how do we, how do we raise the value, the importance of prayer in the life of the church? How do we become a praying church? And uh, Pastor Brenton actually said this. He said, Greg, I look at our elder meetings. I look at our staff meetings. I look at our volunteer leadership meetings. Prayer is evident. Prayer is a priority. And uh, in fact, our staff meetings, uh, we, we probably a good at least a third of the time we're together is in prayer. Prayer is important. Now it's a matter of helping the body to come into the value and the importance and the urgency and the necessity to pray. And of course, if we don't have a burden, we're not as likely to pray with urgency. You have to have a burden. I'm praying God would place a burden on our hearts for the lost that even in an election season, we wouldn't see Stacey Abrams as the enemy. We would see her as adrift in truth. She's not walking in truth. That should burden our hearts for her soul. We should pray for her. So it's, it's a whole different mindset when God puts a burden on you. And urgency becomes important, and prayer becomes uh, the priority. And uh, I think at the first of the year, I feel like a liberty in my thoughts and in my discussion with, with, uh, with leaders that that's where we'll go. We'll do a series that will, the focus will be to become a praying church. And what that means, I don't even know right now. God will reveal it. But, but I, I, I just wanted to follow up from last Wednesday night. That wasn't a fling. That wasn't just a, a, a thought in a moment. I, I've been carrying a burden, and I, I think that God's going to help us to find the value and the deep urgency of prayer in this day that we live. And it's going to result in salvations. It's going to result in transformation.
and it's going to light a fire in the hearts of our people, which will ignite a fire in the church. And I don't want to use fire carefully because most of the time when fire is mentioned in the Bible, it's judgment. <laughs> but there are, you know, one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit is fire. And so we want the Spirit of the living God flowing in our hearts. Amen? Okay, so let's get into the Word tonight. Tonight the subject is miracles. Uh, this is what the Elisha is doing. It's exciting. Uh, the miracles that are occurring and how God is moving. But there's a lot of little messages in this teaching tonight. Wonderful principles and things that we can take uh, tonight home with us that will ignite a fire in our own lives. And uh, so uh, the first, there, there, there are several, there's like three or actually four different things that happen that are supernatural in this chapter. And of course, we, I say, stated to you before, Elijah in his life, lifetime as a minister, as a prophet of God, he, God did like 16 miracles through him. Uh, where Elisha, who asked for a double portion of the spirit that rested on Elijah, and he, he had, thir uh, sorry, 32. 32 times God did something that was just beyond nature as he ministered to people. And so we see four right here in this passage. So let's get started. Uh, the first is the miracle for a widow and her sons. And boy, she really needed it. Verse 1, now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Get as many vessels as you can. Then go in into your own house and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest." What a wonderful story of God's provision for a widow with two sons that are now being called into indentured slavery, and she's in great debt. The legal system in Israel on that day didn't allow her to, to declare bankruptcy. Uh, it was the common thing that if you had uh, debts that you couldn't pay, that you would take your children and they would serve the one who you are indebted to. And and pay off the debt, uh, except, except when you come to the year of Jubilee. Woohoo! So let's say that you are in debt terribly, and your son or your daughter is taken into indentured slavery to pay off the debts, but next year's the year of Jubilee. 
literally all the debt is erased. But here's the problem. The year of Jubilee only came around every 50 years. The 50th year is the year of Jubilee. So that doesn't mean that, uh, that she had that, that uh, working for her. Who knows when the year of Jubilee was compared to when she went into debt. But the evidence suggests that this jar of oil was not a vat. It was not a large vessel or container of oil at her house that she's referring to. It was a little oil, knowing that her husband, when he was living, was, a, was in the school of prophets. He was under the tutelage of Elisha. Knowing that, the oil, many theologians believe, was probably a little flask of oil that was not used for cooking. It wasn't enough oil for cooking. It was only enough oil for anointing. So we're talking a, a small vial of oil, something small. That's what she had in her house, and that's it, nothing else. Uh, so the question that we have to ask is, why did God answer this widow's request? Why? And I don't want you to think that there's some kind of a magical formula that if you can learn it and practice it, you'll get the same result. That's not how our God works. His ways are not our ways, right? So, and God never, even Jesus, when he was performing miracles, never, hardly ever did it the same way, twice. He was always doing it differently. Why? Because the emphasis is not the miracle. The emphasis is looking to the source for the problem, which sometimes was carried out without a miracle. And sometimes it was with a miracle. But don't you know if Jesus always did it the same way? Don't you know that people would latch on to the formula and not Jesus? That's the temptation. So the same is true in the Old Testament. God's going to do four times. He's going to do uh, different miracles, and he does it differently each and every time. Now, why did God answer her request? Let me give you just four suggestions for why, okay? Again, this is not a formula, but these things I'm going to share are absolutely evident in the story. Okay, so I know that it's truthful what I'm saying, but I don't want you to take it as a formula. But here it is. Number one, because it was in his will to do it. The reason he, he took care of her issue was because he willed to do it. We always, listen, listen, please hear this. We always have to put God's will in front of everything. If you come into a major problem in your life, okay, a major issue in your life, the first thing you should do is seek the Lord. First thing. You can call the doctor and schedule an appointment. You can say, okay, I'm going to go straight to the emergency room. But on the way to the emergency room, seek the Lord. Does that make sense? Why? Because God is the true source of all the answers for all of our problems. And so I go to the source of my so, a solution to my issue, knowing as I go and I make a request to be healed, that I am also going and I am humbly submitting to a great and mighty God who knows my days on this earth. He knows all of them. 
And if it's according to his will, he will do it. This is where I get very, uh, it's just, I want to be very sensitive and careful in saying this, but I feel like I need to say it to you. Be very careful not getting caught up in man's formulas. Be careful. Is it important that we watch what comes out of our mouth? Yes. You better believe it. It's the rudder that guides the ship. And uh, out of the heart, the, you know, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. We know what you really think when you open your mouth. And uh, you need to be careful. I do not believe, humbly, I, I respectfully submit this to everyone here tonight. I do not believe that I have the power in my tongue to determine whether or not God will heal me. My words are not greater than God's power and certainly not greater than God's will. Now, is there anything wrong with trying to speak healing, asking for healing, trying to, by faith, lay hold that God will heal? No. As long as in, the, in your heart you know this is really God's deal, not mine. It's not by my word that I am healed or kept from receiving healing. You say, how do you know that? What, what makes you so confident of that? Because I know there's a lot of teaching out there that really stresses uh, the power in our words. But do you know how many scriptures we see God healing people who didn't speak a positive word? They did not know God, and God healed them. Isn't that interesting? It really does come down to God's will in the end. Now, that does not um, cancel our request. This is the beauty of a sovereign God who is overall, knows all. This is just amazing to me. It's, he's genius. Well, he's more than genius, right? He's God. Genius is a step down. Uh, but he, he, even though he knows everything before it happens, he still has it in Scripture, be careful in nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. He still longs for you to come to Him as your heavenly Father asking for help. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It's like God, even though His will will be done, He wants us to come. With So I don't, when somebody's sick in the hospital, and this is pre-COVID more than it is now, because pre-COVID, you know, I could go in there with no problem. Now, I got to go through, I'm right now in a process with Cleveland Clinic here in town. I, for the last two weeks, I've been trying to get my, my badge that I'm a clergy updated with the new Cleveland Clinic. I can't, the, their website, I can't do it. I mean, I'm going back and forth. I'm talking to the chaplain at the, at the hospital and this and that. I'm, I haven't made... I haven't made a single step forward in the process. It's been frustrating. So it's different after COVID. But when I go visit people, 
Um, I never go into the room thinking, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. It doesn't really help. It doesn't matter if we pray or not. Are you kidding me? First of all, I'm not in line with God when I, when I think that way. Okay, so when I go into the hospital, it's I'm going in to pray that God would bring that person through this, whether by science and medicine and technology or whether by uh, his, his divine touch, but I'm asking God for healing in their case. I don't even hesitate. And it's not because I'm, throwing, I'm just throwing that out there like I got to say this. I believe it. I believe God heals. And I've seen God heal. In my own family, I've seen it. My grandfather was a minister of the gospel. He was a preacher in the latter part of his life. Early on, he was a farmer. And he did all kinds of odd and end jobs for people and that kind of stuff. And then he came down with my grandfather. This is my, no, my, not, yes, uh, my grandfather. He came down with rabbit fever. You ever heard of rabbit fever? Well, literally, it, it, it slowly takes your life from you. You can't eat. You have zero desire for food. He was skin and bones, nothing left. My dad said as a boy, he goes, I can remember, dad was, he was dying. And nothing helped. No medication, no doctor, nothing helped him. And his mother, was it his mother? Grandma Dunn said, I'm coming over to visit Charles today. God's going to heal him. And she showed up, this praying mother showed up, and they prayed over him for God to touch and heal him. As soon as she prayed, he said to his wife, Helen, hey, can you get me a ham sandwich? He ate the whole thing. She, he said, I think I'll take another one. This is a true story. He ate two ham sandwiches right away and then made a commitment to God that for the rest of his days because God had supernaturally touched him and healed him, he said, I will go into the ministry. And he served out the rest of his days as a pastor. So I know that we can have faith to heal. It's not us. It's not my faith that does the healing. It's my faith in the God who heals. But I also have faith in the God who at times doesn't heal. You know, if word of faith always worked, nobody would die who believes in word of faith. But everybody dies. So I hope I'm showing respect and, and, and uh, sensitivity to those of you here tonight who maybe have come up in that doctrine. But be careful. Keep it in the context of the greater picture of Scripture. Because anybody can build a doctrine by taking one or two or three or five different passages. But when you look at the whole of Scripture, you find out, oh, wait, a lot of times God healed people that didn't even believe in Him. God healed men who were evil, and He touched them. How does that happen? Okay? So, so in fact, next chapter, Naaman, a, a captain in the enemy's army, and God heals the man. He, he, he didn't have any faith because the man of God, Elisha said, go, go wash yourself in the Jordan. And he's like, 
that filthy, stinking river? Are you kidding me? We've got clean rivers and lakes back in my homeland. I'll go there if that's what it's all about. No, go wash seven times in a dirty river. He's like complaining about it. And finally his servant said to him, just do what the man said. And he went and he, and he seven times went down, came out clean. The Bible says he had the skin of a baby. He had leprosy. Came out with skin as a baby. Not because of his faith. Not because of a word that came out of his mouth. Just that God, for God's glory, healed a guy who was not even a follower. Wow. So, so see, God sees it all. He knows everything. That's why even to this day, it, it bothers me terribly when I see a child that is abused, hear about that, or a child that dies. It bothers me terribly. But at the same time, because of this right here, the Bible, and what I've read in the Bible, I absolutely am totally convinced that God has His purposes being fulfilled even through death. And I don't have a clue what those purposes of God would be that a child would die. But God will use it. I'm not saying God killed him. I'm saying that life, sin, disease kills, but God still uses it. That's the providential hand of God at work. So, here's a woman. This story is incredible. She's in a bad place. She's recently widowed, so that means she's mourning the death of the loss of her husband. He was a man of God. He was in training. And yet, they're in a bad place. They, he had debts that he never paid off. Now the boys are going to have to go serve. And she appeals. So five things. Because it was in his will to do it, God healed her. Secondly, she sought the Lord's help through the man of God. She didn't go to some other source. She went straight to the guy. Remember now, we're talking about Israel, the northern kingdom, that is full of apostasy. They've fallen away from believing and trusting God, okay? So this woman said, well, I can't go to the temple because they don't. They got all kinds of shrines built there against other false gods. So she went to the one guy she knew was true and was a true man of God. She went straight to the source. Thirdly, she was specific in her request. She told him exactly what her condition was. My husband died. I have debts. The collectors are coming. They want my sons to be indentured as slaves until we can pay it off. And I have nothing in the house, nothing except a little oil. Okay, and then number four, this is a very important point. She committed in faith to do exactly as the man of God commanded. He didn't make a suggestion. He said, what do you have in your house? She told him, a little oil. Go out in your community, collect all the vats, all the containers, as big as you can get, the big jars, bring it all into your house, close the door, take that little anointing flask and hold it over the first vessel and let it fill, let it go. And don't stop pouring until all the vessels are filled. And she did exactly as he requested. 
The very fact in the very beginning when he said, go into your community to your neighbors, he actually used the word neighbors. Go to your neighbors and collect empty vessels. Don't let it, you don't want anything in those vessels. They need to be empty. Now that's kind of awkward to go and ask your neighbor for all the empty vessels they have. And, and they're thinking, why do you need empty vessels? Well, because I'm gonna, I got a little flask of oil and I'm going to pour and fill all of them. Well, she didn't know at that point that that was what God was going to do. All she knew was, I'm in debt and I'm embarrassed and now I've got to go to my neighbors and I've got to ask them for their empty vessels, which will cause them, that's kind of a weird question, do you have any empty vessels? Now I've got to explain myself. So this woman is in a tough place, but you know what? He did exactly what the man of God told her to do. No hesitation. He just did it. Okay? So Elisha made the woman commit herself in faith to God's provision. That's, see, that's the key. The key to whatever situation, crisis, circumstance you've come into is you commit yourself by faith to God's provision. Whether it's sickness, whether it's uh, debt, whether it is a relational issue, commit yourself in faith to God's provision. Let God bring you through. I am committed to let God be the answer for my problem. Now, that does not mean that I don't go to the doctor. Okay? God's the one that gave us the mind, and certain people have a mind to know how to study medicine and through their study, they're able to help us. I don't believe God created the FDA. I think that's about as evil of an organization as you can find. <laughs> no, they, it probably started out good, but I'm not so sure it's run by godly people. Uh, and so, so that's where we have to really be careful, is we, we need to go. Go ahead and go to the doctor, but also let God use wisdom. Give, let Him bring wisdom and discernment to you, right? So, so Elisha told the woman uh, to take what she had, one jar of oil. She did exactly as he commanded. By the way, Scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you've got to commit yourself to faith in God. Okay? That I know. That's not a magical formula um, because there's times where God healed people who didn't have faith. You do know that. We've studied that. But for us, we have faith. Well, execute it. Believe it that God can do and go to Him with it. Uh, it's also interesting that the vessels had to be empty. I like what Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said. Listen to this, quote, A full Christ is for empty sinners and for empty sinners only. And as long as there is a really empty soul in a congregation, so long will a blessing go forth with the Word and no longer. It is not our emptiness, but our fullness, which can hinder the outgoing of free grace. I like that. It is our emptiness coming every week. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, the very first Beatitude. Blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit. They're bankrupt spiritually, and they know it. They know that they cannot cover their own sins. 
When you come to God with that knowledge and that full understanding and that attitude, that posture of humility over the broken, you're broken over your own sinfulness. Now you have created, without knowing it, a great reservoir for God to pour His grace into. As opposed to the Pharisees and the scribes who filled themselves up on their own standard of righteousness, which was not righteous at all. It was all works righteous. And Jesus actually said to them, I didn't come to save those who are well, who think that they're in good shape. I came for those who know they're not in good shape. I came for the sinner. That's why those men couldn't be saved, because they were full of themselves and their own righteousness. So that's what we as a church have to focus on. Do we think we're something because we know God? And we just show up casually on Sunday and we kind of just hang out. I like the fellowship and, and I go every Sunday. Oh, yeah, I like Pastor Greg's preaching or I like this or that. No, no, we should come with brokenness over our sinfulness and with tremendous thanksgiving in our hearts that God has delivered me from the pit of hell. And I come with an attitude of worship of the only one who could save me. And now it changes how I approach service, you know? That's really important, really important. So here's the point, and, and write this down if you will. He had to do the work before the oil began to flow. The man of God told her to do some things. Go out in the neighborhood, gather empty vessels, come back, lock your doors. Have your sons bring empty vessels and put them before you as you're pouring the oil and keep pouring and keep filling the vessels until all the vessels are full. That's a lot of work before the miracle was complete. What was the miracle? That her sons were released of bondage. They didn't have to be servants anymore. Yeah, that's the, that's the real answer to her prayer. She didn't start out praying, oh, I just need a miracle in my life. I just, I want to walk in miracles all the time. No, no. Her, her reason for the miracle was to get her sons back and to not have debt as a widow who didn't have income. God provided. He provided. So the principle of this miracle was the same as the principle of the ditches that in the last chapter... God told the three kings to dig. I need you to do some work. You won't do the work if you don't have faith. But if you have faith, don't think just sitting there, standing there saying, well, I've got the faith to believe. Sometimes that's all it takes. But when God tells you to do something along with the faith, you need to do it. He told them, you need to dig some ditches out here in the, in the, in the wilderness. Because God's going to, he said, God's going to fill the ditches with water for your men to drink because the men are thirsty. These men were thirsty when they started digging. They, they, they were in bad shape. And so, so there was a work. That was the test. If you do this, it shows that you truly are believing God is the answer. And we still, to this day, don't know where that water came from that God filled those ditches with. Somebody suggested, well, maybe they dug the ditches deep enough that there were some wells below the surface, and that shot up, and that's what filled them. doesn't say that, 
Some others believe, and I kind of think maybe it's possible that it was a, a neighboring city way out, and God sent rain to that city, and it overflowed like a flash flood, and it ran into the wilderness through these ditches and filled the ditches. Who knows? It could have been God just, boop, spoke the word, and the ditches were full. We don't know. The point is, it's not how God did it. Don't focus on the miracle. Focus on the fact that God provided. My God is my provider. Amen? Jehovah what? Jireh. That's right. That's right. So what a great story. I love that story. That's a great one. Number two, let's go to verse eight. Now we see a miracle for a barren woman. One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who was continually passing our way. Now remember, keep in the backdrop of your mind the setting. This is Israel, the northern kingdom, where the leadership of Israel have fallen away from God. They're not trusting God. Okay? So in that day, when you found somebody who was faithful to God as a leader, whoo, you were drawn to them. That's what you see here. Verse 10, let us make a small room on the roof. She's telling her husband this. With walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And one day he came there and he turned into the chamber. And by the way, where Elisha ministered was in a region in the northern kingdom. And he would pass through Shunem to go and minister where God was sending him. So God had provided a place for lodging for him for free. And so that's one of these occasions. And one day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite, the woman. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said, he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of, of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. I'm not looking for the king to do anything for me. And he said, well, what then is to be done for her? And, and Gehazi, so he's not talking directly to the woman at this point. His servant is doing the talking. And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. Uh, ladies, you probably are getting a little chuckle out of that. Her husband is old, as if she's not old, okay? So don't think that all husbands are just old, okay? He said, call her, and when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he now speaks directly to her, and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Wow. Remember now, in the beginning of the story, he did not ask her for a place to stay. Hey, your location is kind of central I go all over the place. Is it possible that you have a room that I could stay in when I travel through town? Oh, no. She saw the man of God, and she said to her husband, let's build this guy a room on the roof of our house 
so that he has a place to stay. She initiated. Now he is reciprocating. He initiated. He didn't say to her directly after the servant came back and said, you know, she doesn't need help from the king or anybody like that, but she, she is barren and her husband's old, so they're not going to have kids. And Elisha calls her in and he just says, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. She can't believe it. That's not something to play around with for her. This is a very, very sensitive subject for her. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. So, what a great, isn't that cool? What a great story. Out of a simple request to do something nice for the prophet, she wanted to prepare a meal, and then he reciprocated, and as the man of God, he told her, you're going to have a child in the spring, and she did. Uh, now, verse 18. When the child had grown, that doesn't mean he was an adult, but he was older. Probably he was no longer being weaned. He could have been anywhere in his grade school years, you know, as we think about it. Uh, five through, what is that? Five through seven or nine, 11 or something like that. He went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon. And then he died. Uh, scholars think it was probably something like sunstroke, had a heat stroke. And she went up and laid, listen, the first thing she does, the next verse, she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither the new moon nor Sabbath. Um, in Israel, um, when, when it talks about that, uh, every, you know, the, the Lord's day was what we have, but they had Sabbath, Saturday. So, so for her, it wasn't the first day of the, of, of the month, which would have been a special uh, holy day, and it wasn't the seventh day of the week. Both of those were marked for special reasons as holy days. And he's like, well, you're not experiencing a holy day. Why are you going to the, to the prophet? And he said... And then, and then, she, and she's, and then he said, "Why will you go to him today? It is neither new new moon nor Sabbath." And she said, "All is well." She didn't tell him that their son had died. And then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, "Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you." So the, obviously the servant's going too, but let's keep these animals moving. I need to get there quickly. Now, we're not sure exactly how much time went off, you know, between the time that the boy became, that he died and the time that God raised him. But this is, she has to travel to go get the man of God. Where was he? 
on top of Mount Carmel. So this is not like, okay, i got to go down the street and find the prophet. He's not in the area. She's got to travel. She's got to traverse. And a donkey would be the best animal to traverse up a mountain with. Okay? So she laid him on the bed of the man of God, and she shut the door and went out. Now, 1 Kings 17, 17. This is interesting. I believe that she probably, in her mind, had remembered the story of Elijah where he healed the Shunammite widow's son. Okay? 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 17. It says, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So he died. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the chamber. She took him up on the roof into the room that was prepared for Elisha. And cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. This is not a prophet who's speaking the word of the Lord. This is a man who is a prophet who as a man is crying out to God for help. Why we should always bring our requests to God, right? And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Now, when it says the Lord listened to Elijah, and then he revived the child, the takeaway in your head is, oh, Elijah really appealed to God. He he cornered God and said, you got to do something. This woman, I, she helped me, I'm helping her. God, how could you let this thing happen? And so he talked God into it. That's what it appears. in the. That is not at all. Remember now, God knows the end from the beginning, the Scripture says. God knew he would be healing this boy long before Elijah, Elijah ever came to him for a request. But the way it's written is a way that we as human beings can easily see it. Okay? And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The first thing that this, this woman, this barren mother who had a son finally, first thing she does, get him up on the rooftop where Elijah, Elisha's room is. Next thing, let's go get Elisha. We need to appeal to the man of God. This story probably was in her, in her thinking at some point. Guaranteed she had heard it. She knew all about Elijah. She knew all about Elisha. Okay? Now, uh, also interestingly, her husband asked her why she was going to see the man of God because it wasn't the first day of the month or the seventh day. He was totally clueless to the whole thing. She never told him. Why? She was so focused, believing that God would heal the boy. She didn't need to dwell on the fact that he was dead. She just really put faith that God's going to heal. Verse 25, so she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. 
When the man of God saw her coming, he said to his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at, her, run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she told the servant, All is well. That's not her executing a word of faith, acting as if what's happened isn't really happened. Okay, not receiving it. That's not what it means at all. What it means is, I am not going to appeal to the assistant. I need the servant of God, not the servant of the servant of God. He wanted Elisha. Exactly. So, verse 27, and when she came to, and here's how I know what I just said is true. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi, the, his servant, came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. That's interesting. So, so she's coming in bitter distress. She is laying out everything before him. She's totally over whelmed, heartbroken over the loss of a boy she her whole life dreamed of having and never had. And then God miraculously provided, and now God has taken him. And she's laying it out before him. God wanted, he didn't give Elisha understanding of what was going on until she came before him. He wanted Elisha to experience the grief of this mother. Um, what does that say to us? I think one of the takeaways is sometimes we can look at these men of God, these prophets in the Old Testament, and think, man, these guys are like superhuman. These guys are way ahead of us. They, you know, they were special men, special, special, special men. These were ordinary men who God chose to do incredible things through. And the only time that they were special was when God was moving through them. God had not, he, he even said it, God has not revealed this to me. He's hidden it from me. God wanted Elisha as a man, a man of God, but I want you to experience the level of heartache and pain and sorrow and grief that this mother has. And that's what she did. She grabbed his feet, total distress, overwhelmed. It's okay for us. Listen, when tragedy strikes, it's okay to be real about it. You, you don't have to hold it in. Well, I can't receive that. We had a, we had a woman come to our church and... After service, she showed up and she came and after service, she said, Pastor Rick, I need the elders to pray for me. And I said, we'll be glad to pray for you. She said, the doctors have believed a lie. They've lied to me. They've said I've got, uh, I'm in the final stage of cancer and I will not receive that. And I, I said, you know, she's in a tough, tough place. So, Careful what you say and how you say it. And I said, we're going to pray for you. 
I, I didn't have the heart to address the bad theology because she was hurting. So we prayed that God would touch and heal her. She died about six months later. She passed. She never came back to the church. She came twice, I think, two weeks or maybe just one week. Scott, you remember? One or two. And then we didn't see her again. And But she passed. Uh, again, I'm just going to say to you, it all comes down to the will of God. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong. It's not taboo if you come into sickness and you say, I need prayer. I need to be made well. When I go to the hospital, I go to heal, that God would use me to pray and that God would touch them. And I think every one of you, when you go visit somebody in the hospital, you should go the same way. I'm not special, but I believe in a healing God. And I'm asking Him for that. But in the, final, in the final analysis, I rest with the will of God. And let me say this to you, and that goes for my own life. That goes for my own life. Um, I, if I'm sick in a hospital room, let me tell you who I don't want to show up. The person who doesn't believe God can touch me. <laughs> I only want people to show up who really believe God's in control and God can do whatever He chooses and we're asking him to do a healing. That person, come on in. The doubter, please don't visit. I don't want that in, in the room. But not because I think that God can't heal unless there's faith in the room. God can heal when there's no faith. Just keep it in perspective. That's all I'm saying to you. We need to keep it in perspective. We believe, listen, we don't believe certain passages in the Bible. We believe the whole Bible. And when you look at the whole of Scripture... And that's what Paul taught in Ephesians. He said, I, when I came to you for three years, I did not hold back from teaching you the whole counsel of God. I taught you everything the Scripture said. They had a well-rounded understanding of theology about God. That's what I hope, and that's what I know our elders hope we are giving you, a well-rounded understanding of Scripture. And that's what this woman is doing. She's coming and she's letting it be known. And then she said to him, listen to the words that come from her mouth. She said, did I ask my Lord for a son? I didn't come to you and ask for a son. Did I not say, do not deceive me? Because it, it's such a sensitive subject. I wouldn't want anybody to play around with that subject with me. And by the way, we need to be careful when we have Mother's Day. There are, mother, there are women who want to be mothers. And they cannot be mothers. And if we just go up and celebrate those who have children and, and not be sensitive to those who cannot, it can be hurtful. It can be harmful to them. It causes some women not to come to church on Mother's Day. And what we should do is celebrate Mother's Day, but then also take time to think about those who have not been able to experience somebody in the room is to go and just put our arm around and say, I love you. I want you to know that I love you today, thinking of you. Let them know they're not forgotten. Let them know that while the celebration's going on and they're over here bleeding, oh no, we can come and minister to you too. Okay? Isn't that what the Scripture says? Celebrate with those who are celebrating. 
mourn with those who are mourning. And so she, that's where she's at. So he said to his servant, again, he's talking through the servant, tie up your garment and take, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, or if anyone greets you, do not reply. In other words, you don't have time for conversations along the way. And lay my staff on the face of the child. So he's sending his servant, Gehazi, to go to the house, go up into the special chamber that he stays in where the boy is lying, and go ahead and lay the staff on him on the face of the child. So, verse 30, Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. I, I do have a question here. You know, sometimes I just think when I'm studying the Bible, I wonder why. Why is it that way? So here's my, here's my why question here. So why did she, after he gave the servant the command, go and lay the staff on the face of the child, why did she stay with the, with the man of God? He didn't go. Which, by the way, there were times Elijah didn't go, but he sent someone. And then there was times where Elisha didn't go. He sent someone. Why did she stay with him? And it just the thought entered my mind, is it because she thinks he has the power? What would have happened if when he gave the command to the servant, if she immediately went with the servant back to her son? Is it possible that God might have healed the boy on the spot? Was this a test that she failed? She wouldn't leave the she wouldn't leave the man of God. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him. So Elisha is on the way to the house, but he's not moving as quickly as the servant. The servant's already been there, laid the staff on the face of the child, came back and said, nothing happened. Why did he say that? Is it possible that something should have happened? If she had been with him, is it possible? Who knows? But he comes back and said, nothing happened. The child has not awakened. So then, interestingly enough, verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes. So obviously, that doesn't mean he was touching necessarily mouth to mouth because you can't touch eye to eye. How are you going to do that? Okay, I guess chop off your nose and then maybe you can get closer. But So it's a figure of speech. He got in his face. Okay? And his hands on his hands, and as he stretched up, himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. And then he got up and again walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him again. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her. When she came to him, he said, pick up your son. 
and she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. So the boy was healed. But he wasn't healed until Elisha showed up. So what was the significance of the staff on the face? So it's just interesting. I wonder if this healing might have occurred earlier if she had gone with the servant. Who knows? We don't know. By the way, I'm not raising, I'm not saying that I have an answer here. I'm asking a question. It's one of those things. When you get to heaven, you can ask the, you can ask Elisha. Okay? Uh, all things will be known to you in heaven. Amen. That's one that I want to know. So, he, so God did heal the Shunammite son in response to Elisha's prayer. Now, Elisha prayed in the pattern of his mentor, Elijah. Take your Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. I'll give you a second to get there. 1 Kings chapter 17. We're finishing up here. So in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, verse 20, it says, And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? This is the, the widow at Zarephath. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber, another upper chamber, into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the formula. So I need to build an upper chamber on my house so that if one of my children or somebody gets sick, I can put them up there, and then we can have the... The pastor come and lay prostrate on top of my child or my husband or my wife that's dead. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. I ain't doing that. Don't call me to do that. Okay. <laughs> now, look, I'm not. I'm. I'm I, I am joking, but see, here's what I believe. When Jesus, look, when when these guys healed Elijah and Elisha. There were things they had to do. They laid on the boys, laid on them, prayed, put a staff on them. They did things. When Jesus came along, He spoke the word, and Lazarus came out of the tomb. He didn't do nothing. He spoke. You and I are living after Jesus, not before Jesus. We don't need to go back to the Old Testament and use Old Testament practices. We, through Christ, receive our touch. Your salvation was not done by your works. You didn't do nothing. Jesus did everything for you so that all you have to do now is speak. Father, I'm a sinner. I repent. Forgive me. Jesus, you're the Son of God. I believe in you and your work on the cross for my sins. 
You spoke it. And by faith, God did it. Amen? So that's why I'm not going to go lay on somebody when they die. For that reason. Now, I'll come and I'll pray. There's nothing wrong if somebody dies. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, raise them. Pray that. But if the Lord doesn't raise them, you need to move on. And some of I just it's it's really weird. It can get really weird. Some of the things that we do in practice, we just got to be careful. Um, okay, let's quickly cover just the remainder of this. Verse thirty-eight. Uh, this is the purification of a stew. <laughs> That's good. So God's going to take a bad stew and make it really good. Okay. Can you imagine eating God's stew? Ooh, man. Okay, and Elisha came again to Gilgal where there was a famine in the land, and as the sons of the prophets were sitting there before him, he said to his servants, set, set, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. And one of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered, it, uh, gathered from it in his lap full of wild gourds. And he came and cut them up in the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some of the men to, for some of the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, Oh, man of God, there is death in that pot. And they could not eat it. And what they had mistaken for a gourd was actually what they call in the area of the Dead Sea uh, a wild or a yeah, wild cucumber. And it actually will make you sick. It'll, it'll upset your stomach. It'll cause cramping. And if you eat too much of it, it can kill you. Okay, And so it's something like that. That's what happened. I love what Spurgeon did with this passage. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Uh, he said, You have been trying to find pleasure in the world, and you have found wild vines. You have gathered wild gourds, a lap full, almost a heart full. You have been shredding death into the pot, and now you cannot, cannot feel as you used to feel. The poison is stupefying your soul. While we were singing just now, you said, I... I want to sing as saints do, but there is no praise in me. If you, are, if you are a worldling and not God's child, you can live on that which, which would poison a Christian. But if you are a child of God, you will cry out, O man of God, there is death in that pot. Isn't that good? Verse 41, he said, then bring flour. Nothing magical about the flour. This was not magical flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. That's not some kind of a scientific thing that in, you know, in the ingredients of flour, it offset the poison in the gourd. Not true at all. This is a miracle of God. Okay? He could have thrown dirt in the pot, and it would have been the best stew they ever ate. Okay? Verse 42, a man came from Baal... Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruit. So these are these, this is the first fruit of his field that he has made bread from, and he's bringing it not to Shiloh, not to uh, uh, you know. Uh, well, for the case of the northern kingdom, the capital was Samaria. He's not bringing it there. He's he he knows our nation is astray, but there is a man of God. His name's Elisha. So he brings that to Elisha. For his men, okay? And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? Give them to the men that they may, may eat. 
For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and had some left. Sound familiar? Where's that story come from? Or what not from, but what story are we familiar with? The feeding of the 5,000. That's right. And they had food left over, right? Isn't that cool? Uh, so he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Now, here's the interesting thing here. I want you to get this. Uh, we see a miracle in the same vein of the miracle that Jesus performed for the 5,000 men. And when Jesus performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and the Pharisees and the scribes stood by watching and questioning Him, they should have remembered Elisha and the story of the bread that was not enough, and God made it more than enough. They should have seen, hmm, there's something to this man. That was a little hint that God was giving them that Jesus is Messiah, a man of God. But because they did not want to receive Him as a man of God, their hearts were darkened, and they could not see the Old Testament story lining up with what Jesus did. When you are bent on evil, when you're bent on living uh, in, a, in, a, in an evil world, okay, you won't see the truth. You don't want to see the truth. That is why when we pray for our lost family members and lost friends, your prayer should be, God, pull back the veil that's blinding them. God, let them see the truth. Listen now, until God reveals it to them, they're not going to see it. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. They have to, God has to do that work. And sometimes God's trying to do it, but they, re re they reject Him. How many times did God try and reveal to the scribes and to the religious leaders that Jesus is God? How many miracles did He have to do? But see, they couldn't see it. They didn't want to. That's why Paul wrote and said, uh, Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. They cannot see it. So that's our prayer. Lord, unblind their eyes. Let them see. Let them see the truth of the gospel. And let me tell you something. Just as easy as it is for God to throw flour into a stew, a pot, a poisonous stew, and make it good stew, God can open the eyes of those that you love that don't know Him. He can do it, and He does it all the time. He does it all the time. Praise God. And, and you and I are, are, are the testimonies of that, aren't we? We used to not get it. We used to make fun of it. We used to, to think it was stupid to be a Christian. And then God opened our eyes, and now all of a sudden, oh my goodness, thank you, God, for opening my eyes. Now do the same for my family. Do the same for my friends. Do the same in my workplace. Amen? No room for us to make enemies in this world. You make somebody an enemy, you won't pray for them. You won't ask God to open their eyes. All you'll do is want, you'll wish harm on them. Don't do that. You're not God. You're His servant. Do what He told you to do. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank You tonight for this time. We've gone a little over, but Lord, we just thank You for Your goodness and Your love and Your Word. And I pray that tonight 
as we leave, we would take these wonderful uh, stories that have great illustration for us to put in practice in our own lives. May we go and may we learn and may we grow. In Jesus' name, amen.